is risen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you please to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just want to look at one verse this morning while I'll reference other verses. 1 Corinthians 15. And that verse that I would like for us to look at together is found in verse number 17. Hopefully you got one of the handouts. And if you did, hopefully it will serve you in following along. He said, your sins be forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. You would just have to trust him on that one. You couldn't fact check it. There were many claims that the Lord Jesus made about himself, that he and the Father were one. You would have to trust him. You couldn't fact check him on that. But the major claim of Christianity is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I placed on your handout a little definition for resurrection because I don't want us to be confused about what we are talking about. Resurrection is not simply the resuscitating or restoring of life to the body. We could accurately say that that's what took place with Lazarus in John 11. He was resurrected, but he was restored or resuscitated to his life, his earthly life. He died again. The Calvary miracles that we referred to on Friday night there were those that came up from the graves in Jerusalem and walked into the holy city, but they died again. When we talk about Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection, be clear, we're not talking simply about resuscitation or restoring life to a body that will die, still get sick, or age. Resurrection means that you can never die again, never age again, never become ill. And what happened on that Sunday, that glorious resurrection day, was Jesus Christ was resurrected with an eternal body, a glorified body that will never die, never age, never become ill. So when we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about a fact that can be fact-checked. In fact, we could say it this way. The Apostle Paul says in verse 17 that if Christ isn't raised... Some of you may be thinking you're doing that right now, but we are wasting our time this morning. I've heard some people from time to time say something that I consider somewhat foolish. If I find out at the end of life that Christianity wasn't true, it was still worth it. Paul would disagree with you. He would say, actually, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, we are all people most miserable. He wasn't of the crowd or the tribe that would say, hey, even if it doesn't work out, it was a good way to live life. No, if you take away the central claim of Christianity, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ into a glorified body, it all falls apart. It's kind of what has been referred to as the nuclear option toward Christianity. Now, I hope that you find great comfort as believers that the New Testament writers just put it out there. It's not like they try to hide certain things. And one of the ways you can notice the difference between Christianity and other world religions is they gloss over their history. They don't really want you to take a deep dive because if you do a real fact check, you might find out or you will find out that those claims are not true. Unlike biblical Christianity, our major cornerstone claim that Jesus Christ has bodily rose from the dead we're offered to fact check it. In fact, Luke puts it this way in Acts. 
I love the way this is worded in the King James, not so much in the ESV. In the King James, Luke, in his second book, the sequel to his first book, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, the only history book in our New Testament, he says that Jesus Christ, after his passion, showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, the King James says. Now, the ESV just simply says proofs. But even the way this word was used in the Greek language by Aristotle or by Plato, they would describe this word for proofs as something that was indisputable. There's so much evidence that there is no argument any longer. So Luke starts his book out, his history book, saying there's so many proofs that he's alive. For 40 days, he, had, he, he proved that he had come back from the dead, that there is no more argument. Now, I want you to notice on the heels of that, that Christianity falls apart. It's the nuclear option. It's kind of like destroying the Death Star for you Star Wars fans. But you'll notice in verse 20, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. You hear that? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this morning, briefly, I want to fortify your belief that Jesus Christ historically in time and space, rose from the dead with a glorified body that will never die again. And then I want to talk to you briefly about the impacts of that. But first, I want to identify that there are those that would try to deny this cornerstone of our faith. And I've summarized those on your handout in seven little theories, and I'm going to briefly fly over them. One that was popular, not as popular today, was called the swoon theory. These are people that don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. And the swoon theory or the fainting theory goes like this. The claim is Jesus Christ didn't literally die on the cross, that he fainted when they placed him in the cold tomb. He revived and then he basically pulled himself out of the grave clothes and then he pushed away the stone, fought off the guards, then walked through town with um, obvious flesh pulled from his back from the scourging that he had taken through before the crucifixion, shows up in a room, tells his disciples he's resurrected and that they need to follow him as the risen savior. Now, as you can see on the surface, those that held to the swoon theory or the fainting theory uh, don't so much today now that we've learned more about what happened in crucifixion. There's another theory called the twin theory. The twin theory you may not have heard as much about, but it's saying its claim is that there was a twin brother of the Lord Jesus Christ that we knew nothing about. Mary said nothing about. The gospel said nothing about. But that twin brother was actually the one on the cross and the one in the tomb. And that Jesus Christ got out of the tomb. But again, it doesn't explain the empty tomb. The third theory is the hallucination theory. I hope you've never hallucinated. I've never hallucinated that I know of. But my understanding of hallucinations is they're never corporate. Hallucinations are individual. You have something happen in your mind. You think something's happened. They're temporary. But according to this theory, over 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time. And it lasted all the way through the Gospels being written. It would be as foolish as me saying to you, I want all of you to think of a pink elephant right now, and then we would try to get together and see if we all thought of the same pink elephant. I have a feeling that we would have different versions of the pink elephant. The fourth view is the wrong tomb view. Now, there's something about this theory that 
kind of excites me a little bit because for you to say that there was a wrong tomb means there was a what? A right tomb. The wrong tomb is they, they didn't know where the tomb was that they buried Jesus. So what they did is they went to the wrong tomb and then they began to tell everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead when he hadn't just simply because they went to the wrong address. But I think you can see on the surface again that if it were the wrong tomb, all that they would have to do to provide for this theory that Jesus had risen from the dead was just to provide the body and point them in the correct tomb. There's a stolen body theory. This is the oldest. This is the one we see in the Gospels. And we're told that the religious leaders actually said, listen, we'll pay you if you keep telling everybody that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that the disciples stole his body. But this theory really finds a dead end again when you consider that 11 of the 12 apostles died for what this theory says is a lie of their own making. Now, will people lie for a li die for a lie? Absolutely. But will people die for a lie that they made up? Not generally. And for 11 of them to do it, and beyond that, for more to give their lives for this truth that they believe that Jesus had rose from the dead is unbelievable. Another one is the legend theory. The legend theory is that this began to build like a snowball. So it started, and after about 30 or 40 years after Jesus Christ's death on the cross, people started talking about maybe he rose from the dead, and it began to build. But that is countered by the very passage we're in, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. Early creed. Some have dated it within months of more, but these are the ones I'm sharing with you. And that's from the Quran. That's from Islam. And they believe that Jesus Christ actually died on the cross, but rather than resurrecting, they will talk about him being assumed, kind of a beam-me-up Scotty moment of sorts. And they will talk about, even though this was written 600 years after the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, even some of their theories say that it was Judas who actually died on the cross, and God switched places, and Judas was the one that died. Now, all of those theories, I hope that you can hear them and realize, wait, there are certain facts that the scriptures give us that we can fact check, and each of the theories that, are, that I just gave you that are the major pushbacks against the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ don't stand up against the fact check. And here they are. First of all, the inspiration of the Spirit. This is something he says was handed technically to him. Look at the words. For I delivered to you as of first importance that also I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that to 12, and he appeared to more than 500 people. What you see here is the technical words for one group of believers passing down a creed or a confession to another. As I mentioned, some date this as early as months after the resurrection of Christ, which means before he wrote 1 Corinthians, which was about 50, 51 A.D., there was already this Christian creed that young believers, that new believers, that believers of the, the, the new church are confessing together. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. So this is anything but a legend that was made up over time. There's the empty tomb. No one has an account for that that really squares with the facts. There were the eyewitnesses that I've already mentioned, and I want to just mention one more thing. I don't have time to, to dip into each of these, but the transformed disciples. I put this last, but maybe it should have been first. 
Here's 11 disciples after Judas had betrayed the Lord. And we're told that as soon as Jesus died, they went around telling everybody, he's going to rise in three days. Did they do that? <laughs> nope. They're locked up in a room. And Peter says, I'm going back fishing. And everybody else is like, we're joining you. Their understanding is there had been previous Messiah wannabes. Earlier, they had professed that they were the anointed ones, the Christ, the Messiah. But the way you knew their claims were all false is when they died. And from what we see in the scriptures, not one of these apostles were looking for Resurrection Sunday. They were surprised by it. Because they thought all of the claims have come to an end, but what we see after the resurrection, you say, well, this is circumstantial, but think about it for a moment. Eleven afraid disciples now give their lives, all except for John on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos, we understand historically gave their lives as martyrs for a message they made up. Maybe even more amazing than the eleven disciples, think about Jesus' half-brother James. We're told that he showed himself to James. Now, now I have one brother, and his name's James. He would never, ever accuse me of being God. Ever. For a variety of reasons. But James, we understand through the scriptures, anecdotally, did not believe in Jesus. In fact, he told him he was crazy. But what we find in the rest of the New Testament is James authors this epistle a little later in our New Testament. James is a leader in the church. He's one of the early martyrs and we're told that they took him up to the Temple Mount and they said, you deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ or we'll throw you down onto the pavement. You know what he did? He preached the gospel to them. They pushed him down on the pavement. It didn't kill him. So they go down, he's on his knees, according to tradition, praying for these people that they will trust in his older brother as savior. And they clubbed him to death. What will explain such a change? From a brother who thought he was crazy to one who's ready to give his life that he is exactly who he claimed to be. You see all of this evidence throughout the scriptures one more, just as anecdotal, to fortify us on this. But do you remember when Peter and John heard from the ladies early on that Jesus was no longer in the tomb? He had risen from the dead. Remember that? They had a race. Now, as a runner, I find this very fascinating. So Peter and John have a race to the tomb. I don't know how far this race was. I don't know if it was a half a mile, a couple miles, or maybe a full 5K. But they run to the tomb. And guess who outruns who? John, the beloved disciple, outruns Peter, but John doesn't go in. We're told that John kind of stayed out, and Peter, he just does his Peter thing. He finally is huffing and puffing, and he gets to the tomb. He goes inside, and John uses the word for faith. He says that Peter came in, and he began to look. He doesn't use the normal word of blepo, just kind of casually looking at something. But he uses the word that we get our English word theory from. He says that Peter's looking at these grave clothes and he's going, wait. They wrapped the body with all of these ointments. Some would say somewhere between 50 to 60 pounds of ointments that might have been between those grave clothes. And then he says he saw that they disappeared. What would you expect? You'd expect that cocoon to collapse. 
and the face cloth would be neatly here and all of the grave clothes would be there and it's evident that the body that was inside of it has disappeared. Whatever the case, as Peter peered in and looked at it, he came away with, he's risen. He believed. Now, all of this is not new to many of us here today. And sometimes I, I think, okay, we need to be careful not to just study the resurrection technically or affirm it theologically or just even argue it historically. Some of us love apologetics, but there's something way more important than any of those three, studying, affirming, or even arguing. And it's believing. It's actually applying the resurrection to your heart. And I wanna finish with just a few points along that line. The first thing I want you to realize that if Christ bodily rose from the dead, if verse 20 is correct, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Number one, this means Jesus has been vindicated. Everything he ever said, everything he ever did, there were Jews, even some of the disciples, that were really struggling after his death on the cross because they remembered what the Torah said. The Torah said it clearly. Anybody who dies on a tree is what? Cursed. There were some that think he justly deserved what he got. But according to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, when Peter starts preaching after Pentecost, you know what his point is? You put him to death with your wicked hands, but God raised him from the dead. He has said that his it is finished work is actually finished. By God raising up Christ, he was validating and vindicating everything Jesus ever taught, ever predicted. Now, I mentioned to you early in the sermon that there are many things Jesus said we couldn't fact check, yes? But what the resurrection of Christ does is it tells us that everything Jesus ever said is now validated. He's been vindicated. Now, why would that apply to our hearts? Because some of us are still struggling with some of the claims of Christ. That means that, for instance, everything Jesus said about the Old Testament has been vindicated. He spoke about the Old Testament as it were history. He quoted the Old Testament and he quoted the authors of the Old Testament as though God was speaking. The Lord Jesus spoke about marriage. The Lord Jesus spoke about righteousness. And the Lord Jesus spoke about further revelation that would come from his apostles. That means that if he rose from the dead, everything he ever said and the worldview that we have as Christians is all validated and vindicated. You take away the resurrection and anything he said was suspect. Now, I paused whether I would bring this up today because football's pretty much over, real football. But most of you know that I'm a New England Patriots fan, which means that I used to be, no, still kind of am a Tom Brady fan, but there's been a big discussion, as you know, probably over the last few years. Is he the goat, the greatest of all time? I'm not talking about the animal, the greatest of all time. Well, I, I, I knew that was the case before the argument, but basically I've discovered when you're speaking with someone who wants to banter with you, there is one argument that seems to silence almost everyone. He has seven Super Bowl rings. And then everything gets quiet. You just kind of want to talk about something else. It's fun to do. Folks, in an infinitely 
similar way. Christ has validated everything he ever taught, everything he ever did by raising from the dead. Secondly, I want you to know that the application is because he bodily rose from the dead, your sins can be forgiven. I want you to see our text again. Verse 17 says, if he didn't rise from the dead, if he hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your what? You know what sins are? Let's just remind each other. Let's not be too complicated here. A sin is whenever I omit something God has told me to do or commit something God has told me not to do. Maybe it's even simpler if you just take the word sin, S-I-N. The middle letter is what? Anytime I say, do, or think something that displeases God, those are sins. The scriptures are clear, God is holy. No one with any sins will enter his presence. All sin will be righteously punished. So in order for our sins to be forgiven, there needed to actually be more than the cross. And I want you to hear this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Jesus was delivered for our trespasses. Praise God. And he was raised for our justification. In other words, if he had only died on the cross but not rose from the dead, the sacrifice for our sin would have never been officially accepted by the Father. And that's why Paul's saying, you'd still be in your sins. It would be a partial gospel. Sins would have been addressed through sacrifice, but there would have been no resurrection so that you could be declared righteous. And what does it mean to be declared righteous? It simply means that God looks at you as though you've never sinned. But more than that, as though you were as righteous as his son Jesus. Now when did that righteousness become fulfilled for us. For 33 and a half years, he lived on the planet. He was living and producing that perfect righteousness that's now available for all of us. But it was only available when he died for our sins, the great exchange, our sins on Jesus, his righteousness for us when he rose from the dead. It wasn't long ago, our family, we decided, my wife and I decided we were going to refinance our home. For a brief moment, there was super joy because we got documentation that had three words on it in red ink that I love seeing. You know what it said? Paid in full. It was very brief because then I had this other loan. But, but, but I enjoyed it for those two seconds. Paid in full. Do you want to know what justification means? It means that your sins have been paid in full. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you'll commit today, every sin you'll commit for the rest of your life has been paid for and now you've been declared righteous if Christ rose from the dead. Are you convinced that your sins have been forgiven? Only, the only way you'll be convinced that your sins are forgiven is if you're convinced that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. Third, the Holy Spirit, power over sin and newness of life. I put a lot in that point because I want to cram it full. But here's the beauty of the gospel. When you trust in Jesus Christ, that same resurrection power, we're told, that raised Christ from the dead, chapter 3, the power of his resurrection. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talk about the Spirit's power, that resurrection power to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And we're a Baptist church, most of you realize that when you came in and saw the sign. So we unapologetically dunk people, okay? Don't let that make you afraid. But we actually put people completely under the water when we baptize them. Uh, we believe that the scriptures teach total immersion, because that's what the word means. But more than that, we believe it best pictures the theological truth behind it. In Romans 6, we're told that we are dying with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and we raise with Christ to walk in what? Newness of life. So when we baptize someone, we will often use that baptismal formula right from Romans 6. We'll say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in what? So here's the question. Are you enjoying the application, the implications of the resurrection? How much newness of life have you been enjoying in 2022? Have you seen sins being put to death in your life? And have you been renewed in your mind and are you starting to put on the new man on the earth in a body? <laughs> so, so what he's promising is we are going to have the same kind of resurrection body that Jesus Christ had. It's not resuscitation like Lazarus. Praise God for that resuscitation. But we're gonna have a body that no longer dies, that no longer ages, amen? No longer gets sick. And he's told us it's not going to be like floating on a cloud with a harp and diapers, okay? I know we get that view. But we're going to live on a new earth like the one we're on now. We're going to hug people. We're going to know friends and family who've gone before. Jesus said you're going to know Abraham, you're going to know Isaac. They're not different people. They're the same people with resurrected bodies, ready to live on this new heaven and new earth. We're going to eat, praise God, my favorite indoor sport. We're going to eat. Jesus ate with his new body, and we are too. All of that is because Jesus Christ was the first fruits. I know we don't use that word often, but here's simply what it means. He's the first, and there are a lot coming after him. And all those who are in Jesus will enjoy this real eternal life after death on a new heaven and new earth in a body, a glorified body. He is risen. I want to finish with just one question for all of us. How can you know that you are in this Christ? That you are going to enjoy the same resurrection that Jesus Christ promised? That he actually had? Well, I think you need to go a little earlier. You go earlier to the crosses and you go to the crucifixion. And you remember one of the seven statements on the cross one of the thieves that was being crucified on Christ's left and right, one of them, they both had been mocking Christ for a long time, and then at one point, one of them said to the other one, we're up here because of what we've done, but this one has done nothing wrong. And then he says something very simple to Jesus. What was it? Will you remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom? That was not a flowery prayer. Wouldn't qualify for a pastoral prayer in most churches. It was just remember me. And what did Jesus say? This day you will be with me in paradise. You know how you can go from death to life today? Is believe on this Jesus. Romans 10 puts it this way. But if you'll believe in your heart that Christ has risen from the dead, confess him with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. 
Some of you today need to enjoy the power of the resurrection by new life. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your son. We praise you for his death, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, for his ascension. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you intercede for us now. And we ask today, Lord, for hearts that are in this room, for souls that have never transferred their trust from their own good deeds, their own efforts to be accepted by you, to trust fully in what your son did on the cross. May today they be born again. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.